At Online MedEd, we walk you through every topic in detail, so you're ready for the boards and the wards. In this lesson on medical diseases, what I want to do is talk about teratogens. We need to be able to treat people who have chronic illness when they get pregnant. So what I want you to focus on is what do you do differently from normal medical disease when a patient gets pregnant, and how does the pregnancy alter the physiology. We're going to talk about UTIs first because they have their own special category, even though they are acute, and then transition into chronic medical disease and how being pregnant changes how you manage them. Start off with UTIs. So in pregnant women, we do screen for asymptomatic bacteriuria because the risk of being infected in that infection causing problems with baby is too high, so we will screen mom. But someone might present just with a typical UTI, urgency, frequency, dysuria. Or they may present with pyelo, urgency, frequency, dysuria, fevers and chills, nausea, vomiting, and CVA tenderness, showing you involvement of the kidney. Regardless of which one she presents with, the starting tool to determine if there is something wrong with the genitourinary system is the urinalysis. We'll talk about what a positive urinalysis means at the end of this discussion. If she had no symptoms and a positive UA, she's got asymptomatic bacteriuria. There's bacteria in her urine, but she doesn't know it. This is the first departure from normal medical disease. If you find asymptomatic bacteriuria in an adult patient, you do not treat it. You do treat it for procedures where there's been manipulation of the urethra or in pregnant women. And what you're going to use to treat is amoxicillin. Amoxicillin is the right answer. Nitrofurantoin is on backup. It used to be they were completely interchangeable, amoxicillin for nitrofurantoin, but recently there's been some debate as to nitrofurantoin's safety. So for the test, you should use amoxicillin. If they are penicillin allergic with a life-threatening allergy, then you should use nitrofurantoin. But what you're used to using, things like trimethoprim sulfa or ciprofloxacin and other fluoroquinolones, you cannot use because they're teratogens. So first departure from normal UTIs is you do treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. What you're going to use is amoxicillin, unless they're penicillin allergic, in which case you use nitrofurantoin. The third departure is that you do re-screen. That is, you get a repeat urinalysis after treating a UTI. And if they're positive, you'll simply go back to asymptomatic bacteriuria. Now, if the urinalysis shows you that there is a UTI that's a positive UA and you have urgency, frequency, dysuria, you've got cystitis. Cystitis is a common regular old UTI and you're going to treat it the same way as asymptomatic bacteriuria. If you've got pylo, that is you had a positive UA, but you also had the symptoms of pylo, fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, CVA, tenderness, and the sediment showed white blood cell casts. You don't have to have these, but if you see them, it's pylo. Then you've got pyelonephritis. Patients with pyelo are sicker. 
and you need to learn that you will admit them for ceftriaxone. It is possible to treat ambulatory pyelonephritis with Cipro or another fluoroquinolone, but we just learned you can't do that in pregnant women. What you should learn is pyelo is severe enough to be admitted and she gets ceftriaxone. You give her a couple of days and then you reassess. Pyelo may take up to three days to fully defervesce. If she has improved, then it was just pyelo and you are going to treat for 10 days with antibiotics. The duration increases for being pregnant and increases further for having pyelo. If she does not improve, she stays septic. What you're worried about now is an abscess, a perinephric abscess. You treat abscesses for 14 days with antibiotics. But in order to know the abscess is there, in order to do a drain, of the abscess, you have to see it. The way you get visualization of an abscess around the kidney is with a CT scan. And in pregnant women, this is absolutely unacceptable. The radiation burden is too high. So you'll use an ultrasound. Of course, in infections, what antibiotic you pick is not going to be ceftriaxone. It is going to be based on cultures and sensitivity. especially if you have to repeat the treatment for an asymptomatic bacteriuria. What constitutes a positive UA? The things that you're looking for primarily are going to be nitrites and leukocyte esterase. You just want to see that it's positive. The other thing that helps is having lots of white blood cells. They don't necessarily have to be in casts. And bacteria. Now, you won't know what bacteria it is for a couple of days while the cultures and sensitivities come back. But the key to evaluating your analysis is that you must be free of epithelial cells. There must be no skin in the urinalysis because skin has bacteria on it. And when you get the cultures and sensitivities, what you want to see is greater than 100,000 colonies. This is how you know it's a good sample, and for sure, you must treat it. Right, UTIs are off on their own. It's the difference between asymptomatic bacteriuria, cystitis, and pylo. Note that you do treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. You do rescreen. Your only options are amoxicillin and nitroferentoin. And you do reassess pylo. And if you're suspecting an abscess, the goal is ultrasound, not CT. All right, so that's UTIs. Let's move on to more chronic diseases, starting with the thyroid first. If you have too much thyroid, that is too much T4, that can lead to fetal demise. If mom's got too little T4, that's hypothyroidism, that is going to lead to cretinism, mental retardation. You need to prevent both, so you need to keep mom you thyroid. You identify mom as being hyper or hypo by looking at the symptoms. In hyperthyroidism, everything is going to be revved up. In hypothyroidism, everything's going to be slowed down. Movement, metabolism, mentation. In hyperthyroid, she is going to be cold intolerant, hot all the time, tachycardic, afib, diarrhea, weight loss, and may get delirious. In hypothyroidism, everything slows down. It's the opposite of hyper. Bradycardia, constipation, cold intolerance, she's always cold, 
weight gain. The diagnosis is going to be made except when you have a central lesion, which they won't do to you during obstetrics because the emphasis is going to be different. The diagnosis is going to be made starting with a TSH. In hyperthyroidism, there's too much T4, which turns off the pituitary, so there's less TSH. In hyperthyroidism, there's low TSH confirmed by getting a free T4, which is elevated. In hypothyroidism, that inhibition signal is turned off, so there's an increased TSH confirmed by a low free T4. There's a whole lesson on thyroid diseases in medicine endocrine, so I'm rushing through this just so you get the learning points, the things you have to memorize. In hyperthyroidism, for a medicine patient, the next step would be a RIU scan, radioactive iodine uptake. Can't do radioactive iodine, radioactive being the key word, in the presence of a fetus. The same thing is going to be true in the treatment of hyperthyroidism. Hyperthyroidism can be treated with medications, surgeries, or radioactive iodine. You can't ablate mom's thyroid because you're going to also ablate babies, and it's important to ensure that baby's not exposed to any radioactive material. The medication you can use is PTU. PTU is safe in pregnancy. It turns out that methimazole, the other one, is probably just as safe, but the alliteration helps, and this still gets asked on tests. And if you're going to resect a thyroid, it should be done in the second trimester. The first trimester is very sensitive to development, and so the thyroid needs to be maintained. And in the third trimester, mom's belly is too big, making anesthesia really hard. For hypothyroidism, what you're going to do is give her what she doesn't have, levothyroxine. And you're going to test how well you're doing with the TSH. But in pregnancy, you're going to increase the frequency of the TSH. Normally, you'll go every three months, 12 weeks. In pregnancy, you should do it every four weeks to ensure you have the right dose. And again, you're using the TSH and not the T4 to know if you have the right dose or not. And don't forget, in pregnancy, proteins increase. So an increase in proteins will lead to an increased demand of levothyroxine in hypothyroidism. About a third of women need a 25% increase. And so it is often done that you start off at an increased dose and follow the TSH to see how she's done. Okay, that's thyroid disease. Seizures is next. Managing a patient with epilepsy is actually very difficult in pregnancy. The problem is that you know she has epilepsy and all anti-epileptic drugs are teratogens. That's what you should learn. That's the takeaway. The patient is going to have epilepsy prior to meeting you to separate this from eclampsia where she develops new onset seizures during the pregnancy. She comes to you with epilepsy saying, I want to get pregnant. What do I do? The diagnosis is, of course, clinical. You know she has epilepsy already. And the treatment goes like this. The first thing I want you to memorize is that the L drugs are safe. Levetiracetam and Lamotrigine. If you have to pick one of the anti-epileptics and actually treat her, pick an L drug. You should absolutely not use valproic acid. That is a class X drug. And you should not use phenytoin. 
or carbamazepine. These are class D. Identify the ones that we know are bad. Don't give mom those drugs. And if you have to, use levetiracetam or lamotrigine. In real life, this won't be on your test. This will actually be in clinic. You have to strike a balance. A balance of the damage that a seizure will do versus the damage that the antiepileptics will do. The first trimester is where most of the development happens and a baby is most vulnerable to teratogens. You have to weigh the timing, the trimester, where the closer baby is to delivery, the more benefit there is of protecting mom from seizures. That is, the less risk there is of teratogenicity. Weigh that against the frequency and severity of mom's seizures. If she's seizing all the time and their grand mal, if mom dies, baby doesn't get born then it might be worth it to give antiepileptics earlier. But if the seizures aren't bad and they're not that frequent, you may elect to just take her off the antiepileptics entirely. So it becomes a balancing act where you can't have the right answer, more of an art form. If she does seize, phenobarbital is safe in pregnancy. And if she has antiepileptics. She should be given folic acid to prevent neural tube defects. This is essential now, not just a nice to have, as in prenatal vitamins. Two more diseases left. The first one we're going to talk about is hypertension. The goals of control are stricter in pregnancy than there are in general. The blood pressure goal should be less than 140 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. If a patient comes to you with chronic hypertension, she's likely to be on the right meds for a non-pregnant person. What you need to do is identify the medications you can use and transition her off the teratogens and onto the medications she should be using. The safe meds are going to be alpha-methyldopa. This is definitely the most right answer, but it is really indistinguishable between labetalol and hydralazine. If you have to pick between them, choose alpha-methyldopa, but effectively they are as safe as each other. The medications you're used to using are going to be things like ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and calcium channel blockers. ACE is the worst, ARB and calcium channel blockers are close seconds. You're also used to using diuretics, and diuretics are also teratogens. So effectively, all the medications you're used to using in chronic hypertension, you now can't use and have to switch her up. And the last thing is that because an elevated blood pressure is a sign of eclampsia, you have to have tighter screening for eclampsia. More frequent urinalysis looking for protein and a rise in the blood pressure may be that she's not taking her medications or it may be the onset of a sinister disease. You're not sure, and so your index of suspicion has to be raised. Lastly is diabetes. What do you do with someone who has diabetes before she gets pregnant? Not gestational, but actual diabetes. There's three considerations. The first is before pregnancy, preparing her to get pregnant. What happens during the pregnancy? And what happens immediately after? That is, as she delivers 
before pregnancy, you're going to do all of the same things that you do for regular diabetes because she has diabetes and she's not pregnant yet. You're going to go for an A1C value less than 7%. You're going to get there with diet and exercise first. And you're going to then use medications. But if she's coming to you to get pregnant, what you want to do is change orals to insulin. People are starting to use metformin and glyburide, some of the older classes of medication in pregnant women with good safety. The right answer is to get her on insulin. Because what you're going to do is target the insulin to have a stricter control than she might be able to achieve with pills. And you can do that better with using insulin. During the pregnancy, she's going to have an increased insulin requirement. This happens during menses as well. Hormones increase, they cause an increased insulin demand. The same thing is true during pregnancy. The right answer, the right way to do this during pregnancy is basal bolus strategy, which is why you want to transition her to insulin prior to getting pregnant. Because if she's not used to it, you want her to get used to it so she does it right. Basal bolus is a long-acting insulin at night or in the morning, and then rapid-acting insulin with each meal, correcting for high sugars. And you generally want to target postprandials. Postprandial sugars, not preprandials, and you cannot use the A1C to track how she's doing. That's a 90-day average. You want to know day-to-day, minute-to-minute. And right after delivery, after delivery, there's going to be a massive reduction in how much insulin is required. So actually in the same day or the next day after delivery, you need to tone down the insulin, one, because it doesn't matter so much anymore because she's no longer pregnant, and two, because she's going to require a lot less, and if you give her her home dose that she had during the third trimester, you're going to cause a hypoglycemia. The reason why you want to keep all of this is for all of baby's development, which we haven't talked about. If you have uncontrolled sugars early on, it affects the cardiovascular system, and you end up with transposition of the great vessels. If you have uncontrolled sugar during the pregnancy, you can end up with a macrosomic baby. This increases the risk of shoulder dyscotia and also the need for a C-section. Okay, there's a lot contained in here. Highlights. For UTIs, you do screen mom and treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. Amoxicillin, absolutely the right answer. Nitrofurantoin, if penicillin allergy, rescreen. Cystitis, treated the same way, only she has symptoms. If she has pyelo, admit for ceftriaxone and consider whether it's pyelo or abscess. An abscess needs to be drained, and you get the answer with an ultrasound. For thyroid disease, remember that thyroid binding globulin goes up, and so you will need to increase the levothyroxine as she enters pregnancy. Use the TSH both to diagnose and to track how well you're doing. Hyperthyroidism, low TSH. Hypothyroidism, elevated TSH. Seizure disorder, strike a balance. The right answer is going to be levetiracetam or lamotrigine. Make sure she's on folic acid. For hypertension, alpha-methyldopa is the best answer, but should not be asked against labetalol and hydralazine. Increase the screening for eclampsia. For diabetes, 
before she gets pregnant, get her glucose controlled, and switch her to insulin in preparation of using insulin only during the pregnancy, but she will have an increased insulin requirement, and you target the postprandials, not the A1C. And for immediately after delivery, remember that her insulin requirement will fall. Good glucose control prevents developing transposition, macrosomia, and some of the complications of delivery from having a big baby. That is medical disease.